Well, howdy. I'm Danny. Uh, <laughs> is that you, John Wayne? Is oh, this me? That is a... F- I, I, was that I'm, even a good John Wayne impression? That was good enough. It, it, I'm a girl. You do it. You do it. Uh, what should I say? The same thing. It's fine. Is that you, John Wayne? Is that me? <laughs> I feel like yours was better. I No, that was pretty good. I've only seen John Wayne on YouTube videos. I've never watched a movie. Isn't he in The Comeback Kid? I don't know. I know he plays Genghis Khan. Ooh. And he leads the the Mongolian horde infamously. So (laughs) also also, uh, stagecoach. I've seen him in two different YouTube channels because we watch a YouTube channel that's like a film essay channel. Uh Uh-huh. And then we watch a YouTube channel just recently... That uh, bunch of stunt people breaking down stunt scenes, and they talked about Stagecoach, which had John Wayne in it. Oh, yeah. That was some crazy stunts. Yeah. They're falling through horses, basically, yeah. that could trample you and kill you with one step. Anyhow. My name's Jenny. <laughs> Hi, and- Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> and this is Rookie Movie Reviews. Rookie Movie Reviews, where we are looking at the top 100 IMDb movies as rated by fans. Have we actually talked about... Where this podcast started, like why we are doing this. Because your brother gave us a Christmas gift? Yes. Gave us a Christmas gift, which is a poster. And it's on the bottom of the poster. Who designed this poster? I think it's called uh, Artsy Charts. Artsy Charts. Artsy Charts is the poster designer. And this is a... uh, I looked at their website and they have a ton of stuff that's related to all sorts of different shit. And this is just one, where they took little infographics of the top 100 IMDb movies as rated by fans at the time of printing. Because I just recently checked, and at least 10 to 15 of these are no longer in the top 100. Really? Yeah. Um, So, that's Artsy Charts. We got this poster. We decided, let's uh, shoot the shit on a podcast, because we always talk about movies anyway. So. Yeah, get your own chart. Start your own podcast. Tweet at us at rmr underscore podcast on Twitter. Tell us about how much you like making a podcast. Maybe we'll be friends. Yeah. Do you like Catan? We like Catan. I love Catan. Let's play Catan together with our movie podcasts. Also, if you disagree with any of our takes or ratings, send us an email at rookiemoviereview at gmail.com or tweet it at us, and we'd be happy to dispute. Well, I we both get pretty incensed on the internet. Um, oh, I get I flame. Yeah, we will we will <laughs> shout you down. I'm a flame lord. What did we didn't even talk about what so we're watching Kubrick. There's <laughs> there's two things. We're this is the fourth of six Kubrick movies on this list and we watched Full Metal Jacket today. Yes. And this is a movie the screenplay was written by Kubrick in 87. It's adapted off a book. Another adaptation off of a book. So that seems to be his thing. I'm always... I'm... I kind of feel like more surprised when a movie is not an adaptation now. Oh, really? I, well, now whenever, it's 2020. Yeah. Well, that's true. I don't, I don't know what the state of things was in 87, but there's so many adaptations all the time. It's crazy. Yeah. And anytime I... Anytime I hear something is not an adaptation, I'm like, wow, an original IP. That's nuts. Yeah, that's actually true. I mean, there aren't... 
all of the good ideas aren't used up, but we're all familiar with the hero's journey, so it's all formulaic. Yeah. We've all read the Bible. What? The Bible. Is that a hero's journey? It's not a hero's journey, but that's <laughs> how much media is uh, draws on themes of the Bible, because it's like, hey, if I just put in a Jesus reference, I'm going to be deep as shit. You know? Like the Matrix. What? What do you mean, what? What about the Jesus? Is Keanu reference? Jesus? Yes. No. He's the chosen one. He's the savior. He uh, risks his life for his people. And then in the sequels, when he uh, goes into Zion, or not Zion, um, what? I think it is called Zion in the movie, the, where all the humans live and hide from robots. He's definitely Jesus. And it is not subtle. <laughs> we have to watch The Matrix okay. anyway. I so haven't we'll... seen the second or third one. I've only seen him once, and uh, I don't know. They're not very popular. Anyhow, we're just watching... Just like the Bible. Just, it's... <laughs> just, yeah. The sequel's got no traction. <laughs> Bible 2 sucked. So... Second Testament is what Jesus is. <laughs> well, it's all... It's all in... Everyone's more familiar with the compendium. The compendium? Than the, than the individual uh, volumes. And I wasn't there at the time, but the chapter release schedule was... <laughs> there were a lot of hiatuses. The, art, the arts, the art quality dipped. Anyhow, the Bible is a manga. Okay. <laughs> oh, Jesus, this. Watashiwa. It's not like I want you to nail me to the cross, son. But... <laughs> I don't want to die for my people, Baka. <laughs> oh God, move on. Oh, did you know taking the Lord's name in vain is actually about using God's name to justify a war, and not actually about using it to curse, like you are told. So saying like "Oh my God" isn't a sin, but like I throw a pillow at you and I say God told me to do that. That's a sin. So you're saying that throwing a pillow at me is starting a war? Well, a typical one that war. I will not lose. <laughs> okay. We, Can we talk about the movie? Speaking of war. Speaking of war, we watched Full Metal Jacket. And I do want to give a quick aside that we spend a lot of time getting very detailed about the plot. But this episode, we are going to experiment with just being a bit more overview and then talking about specifics as we want based on whatever we wrote down or whatever thoughts we have about them. So we're kind of assuming that you've seen Full Metal Jacket. And just need a refresher. There are still going to be spoilers. Yeah. So if you haven't well, seen it, watch it. It's one of the best movies of all time. Came out in 1987. 87. This movie could run for president. This movie... Because his last movie was Wait, 92. No, this this movie is his second to last, I think. So his last one was 92 with... Eyes uh, Wide Shut. Eyes Wide Shut. Pretty sure this is penultimate. <sighs> Ooh, penultimate. Yes. Very nice. It's also, so it's the fourth movie we watched, and the third one directly related to war. Yep. This guy likes talking about war. I think war is a very divisive subject. I feel like in times of war, it's more divisive. I think, though, we're in a war right now, you know? Oh, we, we've been two wars? <laughs> I'm telling and you we're in two wars? Nobody cares about it. Um... You know, we don't hear about it on the news. We're hearing about coronavirus and Black Lives Matter 
And those are important things too, of course, but like we're in a war. Yeah. You don't hear shit about that. Yeah, shit sucks. Shit's horrible. I don't know. I bet I bet if you looked at his whole filmography through a specific lens, you could argue that everything is gonna be tied to I I I bet there's papers out there that connect all of his films to themes of war. And I don't think it'd be a stretch to do that. Even stuff like The Shining, how there's it, anything with struggle as a central focus could probably be connected to mankind's lust for war and all that shit. Or violence. Yeah. And none of these movies that we've seen so far are pro-war. That is for <laughs> damn sure. <laughs> he hates war and he is not very sneaky about it. So let's let's get into the movie. Let's, yeah, let's, let's talk, talk about it. All right. So the first scene, and I know I said we were going to go quick, but the very first scene is one I want to focus on, which is where uh, all of the men in the movie are getting buzz cuts. And I forget the song that it's set to, but it's it's a whimsical song, as I recall, and they are all getting buzz cuts just carelessly. And I think it's a super effective start because this movie is if you're not aware, effectively two separate pieces. And uh, this first one, this first piece is them in boot camp and they're all having their individuality stripped from them and they are being reduced constantly to less than human by these insults and stuff. And this first scene of shaving their heads, I think is really effective because they've all got these destitute expressions on their faces they have all sorts of different hairstyles and it's being stripped down, which, as I understand it, is the point of getting buzz cuts. You know, you're part of a unit now. It's not the individual. It's the it's the group uh, that's from the outside looking in. That's what I understand of boot camp is developing that inseparable group mentality. But uh, really effective first scene at it, so... Just wanted to call that out specifically. That's great, yeah. After this, we get to meet the drill sergeant, and I think everyone's heard this fact, but this guy came up with all of those insults on the spot. Yeah, I was reading specifics, and Kubrick said that he was just the advisor for the actor, and based on a previous role that Arlie Army, the drill sergeant, had in a different movie, Kubrick said, you're not vicious enough for this role. And then Army requested to audition and improvised insults and stuff. And Kubrick said 50% of his dialogue is probably ad-libbed, especially the insults. So, and, and he is ruthlessly mean. So mean. It's really uncomfortable to watch. The next scene is uh, the famous scene where he goes from person to person insulting them and giving them new names. And at first I was... There were scenes where he says an insult, and I'm like, ha, dang, brutal. But then he goes on and on, and it's like, wow, this is just cruel, you know, and goes from less entertaining to more disturbing and upsetting to watch. This is also when he starts first starts to single out uh, Lawrence Leonard. Leonard Lawrence? It's something Lawrence. I think it is Leonard Lawrence, because that's how effective it is. You know, he takes... Lawrence's identity from him so immediately, calls him Gomer Pyle. I thought that was the character's name. 
going into the movie because I heard no, about... No, Gomer, Gomer Pyle is the idiot from those comics. Can you look it up? Hogan's Heroes? No. It's a show. Oh, my bad. Gomer Pyle, USMC. He, uh, yeah, it's a, it's just a sitcom TV show, five seasons. He's a naive and extremely moral auto mechanic turned USMC PFC from North Carolina. So, just a naive, lovable idiot who's got a strong moral compass, I guess. But that's going to pile. Gets singled out by early army very early on. Throughout the whole boot camp sequence. Yeah. He's played by Vincent D'Onofrio, which, funny enough, I always mistake for Vince Vaughn. Oh, you think of uh, Vince Vaughn during that? Yeah, I was like, oh god, this guy's totally in, uh, fucking... Wedding Crashers. The interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Wedding Crashers. Um, Or, uh, True Detective. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I was about to get all like, he's not in True Detective. He's in season two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a very over-the-top character in season two. Uh, But Vince Vaughn, or I'm sorry, Vincent D'Onofrio, he is in Jurassic World. Yeah, what I always think of with him is Daredevil. He plays Kingpin, and he plays him very well. The same Kingpin as in the Spider-Man comics? Yeah. Really? He's a he's a he's both a Spider Man and a Daredevil villain, but uh, as I recall, he's based out of Hell's Kitchen, which is Hell's Daredevil's Kitchen, yeah. bureau borough. And uh, borough. yeah, so he no, <clears throat> there are seven boroughs. Hell's Na- Kitchen is a neighborhood. He's uh, based out of a small neighborhood in one borough, and most of season one of Daredevil is him fighting with. Daredevil and Kingpin, so... Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I basically think of a different actor, a completely different character, whenever I think of D'Onofrio, so... There's one thing that stood out when they were really ragging on him, because the boot camp arc is... It's really tough. Everyone is kind of excelling, except Gomer Pyle. He's being berated. He can't get... Uh, he can't succeed, and everyone kind of resents him for it. And then there is a pivotal scene where he has a jelly donut, and the drill sergeant makes him eat the jelly donut, and everyone has to do push-ups while he eats it, and that night everyone beats him up. And after this, everyone uh, he starts to excel. So that's kind of where the arc lies, and the reason I want to break that up is because I think that there's a lot of these cult initiation scenes type stuff that uh, depend on if uh, Gomer Pyle is successful or not successful. So when we're saying, this is my rifle, this is my gun, there's a scene where they have to get in bed with their rifles and name them women's names, and it's horrifically misogynistic and uh, just brutal hazing pretty much, and they have to lie there with their gun and name it, and they all chant in bed, and they're screaming, and it, these scenes go on for a long time. And when that's happening, we're seeing them all become cohesive, and we know that Pyle is failing, and it, I think it does a really good job of showing the cohesiveness of everybody except him, and it really distances him from everyone else. 
that's that's the before his pivot. Man versus society. Yeah. There, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that goes down in the boot camp uh, sequence, particularly when Pyle's being shit on. Right. Um, I don't know if you had any specific call-outs or... Because I wrote down so many quotes. I wrote down how intently he was watching when they were talking about the guy who shot up the university. Oh, yeah. That's a really fantastic scene. Uh, did you want to like cover that more? or? He just has this look on his face of being completely lost in thought. And it seems like he's taking it to heart. And I, I don't recall why that man decided to start shooting people in the university. From the clock tower? From the clock tower. Um, but sociopathic killers tend to have a lot in common. Mm-hmm. So I think focusing on him and talking about a sociopathic killer was a hint from the director that, hey, this guy's no good. I mean, his dead stare, Vincent is super good at looking like a creep. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's two specific things. One that it made me think of, which is Jack's stare at the end of The Shining, where he's frozen, and there's scenes where he's like looking out and he's a killer. Oh, the Kubrick stare. Yeah, and he just looks totally brutal. And then there's a scene, this is jumping ahead, and I don't want to jump this far ahead just yet, but uh, they are in Vietnam arguing about whether or not Joker has seen action because he doesn't have the thousand-yard stare And all of these scenes where he's just looking off into the distance, he has got the thousand yard stare. He's a broken guy at this point. Oh my God. When they're talking about these killers. And that's not to mention the obvious thing where Kubrick is so anti war in that Arlie Army is talking this entire sequence about how he doesn't need men, he needs killers. They don't want robots, they want killers. They make him scream that they're killers, and in this scene they are applauding the ability of actual murderous killers, you know, so... Yeah! There's a lot of shit going on in this scene, and Vincent D'Onofrio's performance is definitely up there. Yeah, he definitely looked like a killer in that scene. Um, So, the drill instructing the P.E., eventually Joker becomes the new squad leader, and... Gomer Pyle starts doing really well. He can do the exercises. We find out how good he is with his gun. And he's having a little bit of a redemption arc. And this is specifically because Joker is helping him. Yes. And if I may, I want you to continue after this, but just one thing that I felt very, very high and mighty about noticing is that just leading into this stripping of identity when Joker becomes the squad leader... The drill instructor asks, do you believe in the Virgin Mary? He says, no. And he smacks him. The drill sergeant smacks Joker. And he's like, yes, you do. Say say you do. And he says, no. And he's like, why? Are you trying to piss me off? Joker says, no. This private believes that he will be beat more. This private does not believe in Virgin Mary. And the whole conversation he's saying, this private, like speaking in third person, he's not saying I or me. He's uh, totally acquiesced to this group culture of saying like oh i'm removed from myself at this point that's kind of how i read that he's got his own convictions and not believing in the virgin mary but 
you know, this, this, uh, this private is just such a third person thing. So you're saying after Joker takes Pyle under his wing, patiently yeah. teaches him. And we already talked about the beating scene, but Joker is one of the last people to really hit Gomer with some soap. Did you feel that he was... There, I think there's ways to see it, because he's not hitting him. He hits him last, and then he beats him like four times really brutally. And I don't know if I meant to read that as, you know, he's truly frustrated with this guy and hates him, or... If he's ashamed that he went along with it and lost his identity or what. But do you have any... How would you read that? Yeah, I think it's more about shame. Just... Because especially later on in the movie with Joker wearing the peace badge. Mm-hmm. He, he desperately wants to be uh, conforming. But there's some morality within him that refuses. And I think him really beating Gomer was him really trying hard to fit in but it's such a a jagged fit into the puzzle piece of his soul that he lashes out in an extreme way i don't feel like it's a true representation of how he felt about gomer because there's frustration and there's disdain and i feel like he was more frustrated than disdainful that's a really astute way of putting it the the puzzle piece of the soul, you know, like, absolutely just, or, or when magnets aren't supposed to be beating and it's just violent uh, repulsion like that. So, yeah, I think uh, I 100% agree. That's a really smart way of putting it. So he's he's beat. Gomer got beat. And then... Now he knows everybody hates him. He knew before then, and Joker said no, which was a lie. Yeah, this was this beating was stimulated by the fact that he was hiding food, and the collective Keeps punishment up, yeah. uh, that the other Marines started to resent him. But we are saved from uh, after this beating is when Gomer starts to do exceptionally well and even impresses Hartman with his shooting ability. But he's like talking to his gun and stuff, and. Uh, Joker tells Cowboy that he is a Section 8, like he's going a bit mental. And uh, very quickly after this, we jump to the the graduation of these people because we are being told, like, oh, it's it's winding down, it's getting to the end, and now we're the night of graduation where Joker and everybody else uh, graduates. They walk in front of their family. They're a unit. The shift from the abuse of the drill sergeant to the praise is effective because I imagine it's very similar to that in reality where he says you're no longer maggots, you're men. And I bet at that point it means a lot. Yeah, it's like being in a cult. Yeah. he's. Oh, that's <laughs> that's probably the point Kubrick wants to make. <laughs> yeah, I, be- I bet. Like he He's so brutal and then he's finally accepting and... They, no one at all just thinks, like, that's pretty fucked up. Yeah. Or, you know, being in a cult or an abusive relationship. The cycles are similar. Yes, 100%. And, you know, we see all these scenes. I just want to call out, because I know I mentioned earlier, when they're exercising, doing PT, yeah. marching, we see a lot of singing scenes of, you know, crude 
chants that are made up. And I always felt like these scenes went on for a very long time. And I think that's intentional just to drive through like how monotonous and repetitious this can be. Oh, yeah. But in any case, we graduate. It's the final night. Joker is doing patrol and he finds Pyle in the bathroom in the middle of the night. Yes. You want to cap off part one here? and Sure. Um, so Joker is squad leader, so he's supposed to be making sure everybody's staying safe and staying in bed. But he checks the head, the bathroom, um, which doesn't have stalls. I noticed in this scene. Mm-hmm. It's just the way it is. Some open shitting right there. <laughs> uh, open so, floor plans are great for office morale it's, <laughs> it's important it's good to collaborate on the toilet <laughs> um, so Joker goes into the bathroom to check things out and he sees Gomer in there cleaning his gun and he says hey knock it off essentially and then Joker um, I'm sorry and then Gomer loads the magazine of his rifle fully loaded Full metal jacket. So we find we already found out how professional he is with his gun. And then the drill sergeant comes in and he tells him, Hey, give me that gun. And we know we can see the frustration on Gomer's face. Super good. Super good acting. And he shoots the drill instructor right in the chest. And then he turns the shotgun onto himself. And then he shoots himself. Yeah. So everything built up way too much. No amount of praise was going to fix the damage. Truly. It was it was such an impactful scene. There were two specific things that struck me as very, very good about the scene. is He does his rifleman chant with, this is my gun, there are many like it. And I think that's just driving home the point, like, look... He's indoctrinated. You know, yeah. they were all trying to become indoctrinated, and it was, it was, it didn't go wrong with Pyle. I got the sense that it was so hyper effective with him that uh, it just was the continued, uh, the, the logical conclusion of this. You know, they they want to make killers, but obedient enough killers that they see you know, obedience as, as good, you know, like they follow orders and all that. And this is called back by the drill sergeants espousing the ability of these actual murderers from clock towers. And now they made another one. And um, I don't think it's supposed to be super shocking. I think it's supposed to be like, well, you, you get what you uh, what you build out. And, and you made this person into this. So yeah, I felt... Like, that was uh, effective about that scene. Or that's how I felt about the scene. And the other thing was the fear that Arlie Ermey could portray after being a hard-ass the whole time. Like, you knew he was afraid of Pyle in that moment. And just the volume he brought was so different than his berating volume. It was, like, a really potent terror, uh, which was impressive to me. I wonder if that symbolizes a moral objection if Gomer Pyle is this super moral thing. Like, if he has... He's he's part of it, but he rejects it so hard that he needs to kill himself. 
Maybe, yeah. Especially given the name that he's granted. Yeah. You know, this shit isn't random. No. That, that uh, Kubrick decides to give or the author gave. Yeah. Like, Much like our cat's name, Pugsley, of royalty. He is of royalty. He's a king. <laughs> he is using Memoirs of a Geisha as a book. Or <laughs> he's using he's using Memoirs of a Geisha as a pillow. All wrong because his head's off the edge. He just wants some chest support. He loves memoirs. <laughs> chest support. He's a well-read cat. He's well-read. We, we, he's sleeping through the whole thing. He's a terrible co-host. Yeah, hey. We've, he said he would be involved in the podcast and he just doesn't participate. He's been here once, maybe twice. Yeah. Vocally. I mean, physically, he's been here for every podcast. But, but he, he doesn't just say anything. Yeah. He just sleeps as soon as we start and we've talked with him. But... It's... He doesn't get paid, so it's fine. We don't get paid either. Also, our Patreon. No. <laughs> I'm kidding. Okay, now we are moving into part two, which begins with Joker and Kennigan. Kennigan? I only, Ketterman. Ketterman. I only know that they call him Rafterman. Rafterman. Yes. Okay. Joker and Rafterman are sitting uh, at a cafe in Vietnam, presumably. And a prostitute comes up, and this is an iconic scene. It was at least when I was a kid because it's so dirty. I don't know, but the prostitute comes up, and she's like, "Me love you long time." Yeah, I didn't know that this was from this movie. Yeah. But as soon as she started saying it, and I'm like, "Oh fuck, I've heard this before." Me sucky sucky five dollar, you know all that yeah. shit. Which um, is like super fucked up. Yeah, hundred <sighs> percent. And we see Joker kind of play along. And at first I thought, this guy is going to exploit a prostitute. And he's the main hero of the movie. He's the moral pinnacle of the movie. And he's going to have sex with this destitute woman. But I think it makes clear that he was not going to. And I think that he's, it starts to lay down the, I'm pretty... He's he's a he's a peace guy. Yeah. And I think he's got this very cynical view of the war. He's a stand-in for like the public because he's a reporter. And yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So Vietnam War. If you don't know, it's <laughs> <laughs> it's not a popular war. It's not our most popular endeavor yeah. as a United Nations. At least we pulled out United a W. States. You know. <laughs> we lived. We grew up in Wassa, who took a lot of refugees, like a lot of Laotian refugees. So I guess that's. We don't get any moral reparation from that, but I guess that's our simple atonement. It's not enough. Went to this dumbass war. Anyway. Okay. Um. Then he makes this really bullshit joke about how they're Viet Cong or they have TB, so only fuck the ones that cough. Oh. You're going to get TB. Yeah, I didn't catch that joke. Um, Tuberculosis? Yeah, so, well... Wasn't the joke that it's better to get TB than to have sex with someone who fraternized with the enemy? It's like, only fuck the ones that cough, meaning, yeah, you'll get TB, but at least you're not uh, fraternizing with commies, you know? (laughs) Maybe. I guess I assumed that VC meant that they would 
lure you like a honeypot to kill you. Mm. That's fair. I don't know. Anyway, Ketterman gets his um, he gets his camera stolen, and then the guy who runs off with it does some sick Krav Maga type yeah. moves. Does martial arts screams and moves. Yeah. Joker returns them. Just it was a. I wrote down that this was a really bizarre intro to Vietnam, which I think was the point, because. We see our main guy and his partner, Rafterman, and they get approached by this lewd prostitute and they make these crass jokes about soliciting this prostitute. And then there's this ridiculous theft scene where they're both just screaming at one another. But I, I think that's the uh, the point of this particular intro. It's just so bizarre, you know? I'd agree. But uh, after this, we go back to the base. We see that they are working on a paper. They're with the Stars and Stripes, which is like a propaganda paper for the U.S. And all that I really liked about this particular scene was that, A, Joker seems much more free and expressive. You know, he's growing his hair back. They don't have to shave it anymore. And the way he talks to his boss at this paper they're joking about like, oh, I'll write whatever you tell me to write. And he talks back a lot. And the boss actually allows it and reciprocates, which is such a juxtaposition to if he in, he impersonated John Wayne in the beginning of the movie and got punched in the stomach by a screaming drill sergeant. <laughs> you know, it's just such a different world, uh, which is really effectively communicated with how these characters talk to each other. What are you looking up? What Vietnamese martial arts are? Oh, I have no idea. Binh Dinh Province. Uh, traditional Vietnamese martial arts. Vo Flat. Oh God, I. Mm, it's not karate. <laughs> I thought Krav Maga was a better call, but apparently that's Israeli. I don't. I. Krav Maga was wrong. Okay. Um, it's something I can't pronounce. Perfect. Well, after this newspaper scene, we see, uh, you know, they're they're talking with uh, one another about the thousand yard stare. Yes. And then the base gets attacked, and they repel. Attack, which is um. The Tet Offensive. Yeah, the Tet Offensive from nineteen sixty eight, a very famous. Uh, escalation of war. Mm-hmm. So, things are escalating. And they have a real gunfight. Um, well, before Tet, <laughs> we we get to meet, I can't remember his uh, character name, but it's Jane from Firefly. So, Adam Baldwin. Well, if I recall correctly, and I don't mean to call you out on Oh, was it after? Yeah, because... They're talking about Stars and Stripes, and then the Tet Offensive Yeah, we don't meet him until Wooly Bully. Yeah. Oh, thanks for writing down the song. Yeah. So, yeah, the the attack on the base is repelled, and I just wrote down that it's very surreal. Like, they're all just shooting the shit, and then the lights go out. That's war, though. That's the craziest fucking thing. It's people. It's just people killing each other. Yeah, and, I mean, this movie does that very effectively. Like, conveys that oddity of... Of the actual act. And this scene with the attack on the base. 
there there's just people sprinting up where a few moments ago is completely peaceful and they repel the attack and now they are directed to uh go to a place called Fubai, Fubai. with Rafterman. So uh Joker's boss says you're going to Fubai, there's gonna be an attack or something, I forget exactly what, but yeah. they head up there and now is when they hear Wooly Bully and meet with uh a cowboy. Back up oh, because boy. on their way to this base, they're in that helicopter with a guy who's just shooting rice farmers. Yeah. He's like, Ain't more help. Do you kill women and children? Mm-hmm. Sometimes. Like it doesn't. Well, I. Pfft. Both. Both gender. Uh, all genders matter. All ages matter. But like women and children traditionally get, get the shit. Like women and children fest. Off the boat. Yeah. Um, so I think in 1987 those values were still really upheld. Which I feel like they are now, too. Like, if there was a robber in this house, I think the societal expectation is for you to, you know, check it out. I think that's fair, but also because I'm much larger than you. So, I'm, <laughs> I'm a more imposing figure, you know? You are 6'2". I'm a measly 5'4". So, yeah, the way they do this is really effective. Because they're in the, um, what were we talking about? Oh, they are in this helicopter with this guy screaming, get some. And we see Joker just sitting there, fairly nonplussed. And his colleague, Rafterman, who's established as being completely green. And yes. desperate to get some action. He's um, He is a born killer, sir. Same, same way Joker was before he got in it. 100%. And he's sitting there in this helicopter vomiting. And we just, we hear this guy screaming, get some, get some. And we see him shooting and he's just shooting out the helicopter. And my thought is like, oh, he's shooting people. And then there's like a slow pan or a cut to show he's shooting innocent rice farmers, like you said. And I think that the, the structure of this scene is so great because we're watching Joker and Rafterman. Rafterman is vomiting. And if my first thought was, oh, he's air sick or something but i think what's really going on here is that he is so freaked out by this wanton killing that he's yakking and this one dude is so crazy saying like take pictures of me doing this uh i'll be famous they'll love me so uh, it's just you know some people out there are fucking psychopathic killers and joker being this cynical stand-in for the public is, oh, you kill women and children? And he's like, yeah. He's like, why? You know, he he's not, he's not pissed and he's not excited. He's just, he's joking about it because if he's not joking about it, you know, he's going to go crazy is how I read this whole scene. That's first. so, oh my God. That's really good. But. It's really good. Uh, I, um, my dad graduated in 74. So he was pretty close to being drafted, and when my grandpa died, we found a lot of old Mad comics. And there's a lot of anti-war stuff in those, so I think the general sentiment all along the way was anti-war. So it's kind of funny to think about how Paths of Glory 
was about World War One or two. One. Yeah. World War One, but it was set during the Korean War, which is the Forgotten War. I don't think it was. Pets of Glory was set. It was set during World War One or two, but it was filmed in 1957. Oh, so it, oh, I, I misunderstood what he said. I thought he said it was set during that war, but framed as like World War One, but it was. It was, it was released. It was either during the Korean War or just after. Okay. I'm with you now. So, 87, I guess, was a rel- the Cold War. Yeah. Um, I'm always surprised by how early shit started going down in Afghanistan. I'm pretty ignorant about Desert Storm and all that, but it was going on since, you know, early 90s. Yeah. Probably earlier, and I'm just ignorant of it. Well, but, yeah, truly, like the because we're reflecting on wars that happened in the past, and that's what makes this Iraq and Iran and Middle East conflict so bizarre. Like, we've got movies like Hurt Locker, uh, Jarhead, parts of Barry, yeah, know, the show, all that shit is already contending with this war and its impact because it has been going on so long. And I think this release schedule of war movies from the 50s to 90s just shows... I don't know what it shows. I feel like it shows that the public had much more awareness of the conflicts that were going on. Because, I don't know, what was the most famous... What's the most famous Middle East conflict war? Probably the quote-unquote war on terror, which is, I think done now because Bush claimed victory before he left <laughs> no, off. No, I meant movie. Oh, movie? Um, Jarhead? Jarhead. I think... And I haven't seen Jarhead, you know? Yeah, me neither. Like, oh, we have Black friends... Black Hawk Down. We have friends who have been, like, deployed. Yeah. And it doesn't... It's like, oh, weird. You're in the Middle East? Why? You know? Yeah. So I feel it's a really, it's a disservice to the public that we're so robbed of the information because the media really, I don't have to get all conspiracy theorists on this podcast, but we're so shaped by what's broadcasted to us. So when we get denied this information, when it's expected of us to go out and seek this information, it feels like it's obscured. And I feel like they didn't have that back before the news was so dominant or i feel like the integrity of journalism has really turned on wider wider issues like that i think that's fair to say i think i think what they're trying to do is kind of pitch the lower classes against each other so that we ignore what's happening with the upper echelon of society and what we need to do is eat the rich i don't think that's controversial to say that things are skewed to uh turn you know, the the class structures uh inward rather than examine their context. You know, that's that uh, I mean, just serves the people in power and I think that's fair to say. Jeffrey Epstein, fucking Donald Trump, our current president, yeah. We're off on pedophile island and we all fucking know it. But what's happening right now? There are riots in the street because the police keep beating people up. Yeah. It's fucked up. Because the media up. controls so much. <sighs> I don't stop. There, I mean, there's there's more than we can reckon with on a movie podcast. It's important to... <laughs> it's important to talk about it, and it's important to... Are we con- recording? What the fuck? Yeah. I thought I was just 
talking about my innermost thoughts. It's important to constantly talk about it. Yeah. Um, and it is frustrating that... Well, cops are killing people. Yes. This this is a Black Lives Matter podcast. I will support that. Yes. This is a, a pro-trans podcast. I'll support that. This too. is a pro-women podcast. I'm with that. This is an anti-establishment podcast. In this podcast, Jenny goes on a tirade against the mass media and the patriarchy. Whoa. Uh, they also find a pile of dead bodies. Well, as they get off the helicopter, they find a pile of dead bodies. And they basically... this. I, I don't want to get super detailed, but there's so many scenes that have something that feel very significant. Like this scene where they find the dead bodies are interviewing someone who learns that they are with this publication and in between describing the murder of these civilians, he's smiling at the camera to get a good picture. So he's like, oh yeah, they were lined up on the ridge, grins at the camera, and we uh, had to execute them or something obscene, grins at the camera, and we think there's about 20 dead people, grins at the camera. And it's just uh, very on the nose, but very effective at how hypocritical um, all that all that shit is. I think is, the like huge the point of the movie is that so <laughs> it's really on the nose, but Joker gets asks gets asked, Why are you wearing that peace button and born to kill on your helmet? And he's like, I guess it's about the duality of man, sir And that's <laughs> it's like Kubrick was like, I don't want people to get me wrong here. What can I do? I yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> he's definitely a maybe a self insert, but yeah, the um, the general and that's uh, I feel like that's an exacerbation of his uh, resurgence of being human. I suppose Joker being human. I think another important thing about this movie, since we talked about it earlier, is the motif of hair. Yeah, and Joker keeps his hair pretty long. It looks like he hasn't had a haircut since Drill. Truly. Whereas if you see Rafter Man, who is pretty green, and later in the movie Cowboy, um, they're keeping it pretty tight. But... And uh, Animal Mother, Jane Cobb. Yes. They, they all have these really tight haircuts. Um, and not tight as in nice. But <laughs> Ooh, small. <laughs> small. Their hair looks small. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I, I agree 100%. And... Where he responds like "sir," but he's saying these things that are outspoken. It's about yeah. the duality of man, sir. Like whereas before, the most outspoken thing he said was, "I think you'll hit me if I change my answer back," and he got squad leader for that. But now he's like having philosophical debates with commanding officers. As long as he says "sir" after, he's fine. You know, like he's really gaining back some of his individuality. After you, that first part. Yes, individuality in dialogue. Do you think all of the overtly sexual comments were an attempt to humanize him? What what were, like, that he made? Like, oh, can I fuck your sister? Or can I slip your sister my tube steak? With cowboy, with cowboy. Oh, got it. I think the overtly sexist and, like, aggressive sexual comments... You know, there's probably something to that. I think uh, it's very much like um, in Paths of Glory or even Strange Love, 
where all of these warmongers were cast as, like, sexually potent and all that, you know? Do you think it's telling of the 80s and 90s that they were so sexual in a movie that was set a little after the times of the 50s and 60s? Like, uh, that, I mean, that's like it's so an tough. expose on how it actually was, whereas, I mean, in Paths of Glory, um, Ripper talks about denying a woman his seed. Mm-hmm. And his impotency. His impotency. And that's funny. He casts his impotency as a choice to deny a woman his sperm. You know, like it's not his failing; it's that he chose to uh, not grant this woman that. You know, anyhow. Do you? So do you think it's just because the eighties and nineties were so much grittier that they that Kubrick felt like it was appropriate to express these feelings? I mean, when was? For God's sake, when did Clockwork Orange come out? Because Lord knows that's pretty gritty. I want to say that's uh, 70s or early 80s. Yeah, I feel like that's 70s too. (sighs) Which I guess will be the next or second next. I think those are really good questions and they're so hard to answer because looking back, it's hard to say, you know, there's if a a piece of art comes out like um, Full Metal Jacket, do we give it the benefit of the doubt that someone who's creating an insightful movie or a challenging movie or a piece of art or something, if they have their character say something sexist or deranged or derogatory, do we view that as Kubrick was probably, he probably had some sexist ideas just by virtue of living as a man in the 80s? Or is he aware enough of these issues that when he says it, He's making it with the commentary that it's wrong and he knows it, but he's like, look at these people doing it for the sake of the movie. That's a good point. That's a really good point. I feel like the issue with the modern frame that we have is that some of the stuff is so disgusting to hear. Whereas if it was 87, maybe you'd be like, ha ha. Yeah, like the like the <laughs> insults. Like, like is, it, is it supposed to be comedy because of when it is? Or is it supposed to be this commentary? Like, um... This is skipping ahead, but the prostitute after um, the bird is the word. Hui. That's the attack on Hui, which In is Hui. Hui. Yeah. Is that racist? I just like the way it sounds. Yeah, no, it sounds like uh, Kurds and Hui. Hui. Oh. It's like Stewie from Family Guy. Yes. That's, that's why. Yeah. Um, anyway, in Hui... Uh, they talk about how the black man's penis would be too buku. Mm-hmm. And that's like complimentary racism. And I think it's supposed to be funny, but like with everything that's going on, it's just like, ah. Yeah, it's, it's really hard to remove a modern lens uh, or a modern reading of anything in particular. And I think that I'm tending to view these movies as giving someone like Kubrick or someone that's talented enough to get their movie up onto the top 100, I I can't help but view it as give them the benefit of the doubt because... I, the real issue with giving the benefit of the doubt is that in Hollywood, a lot of these directors are actual trash. Like, yeah, Roman Polanski is on this list. That's true. That And I, he raped a 12-year-old. Yeah, that... Uh, 
That's a good point. I guess I didn't even consider that uh, when making that claim. So I, I think... Uh, yeah, it's so difficult because... Damn. As a society, we're really uplifting Hollywood. I Like, it's it's magical. It's the land of dreams. There's a big-ass sign that says the word Hollywood. Yeah. It's out in California where it's sunny and the people are gorgeous. But... Like, if you hear about actual Hollywood Boulevard, it's full of homeless people. Like, every director is a rapist, question mark. Not every. I mean, I'm sure there are good people out there. Yeah, of course. But, but like, all the big names that you hear. It's impossible to hear all of this shit that there's, oh, there's no proof of because there's no trial. But then you hear the stories of victims and it's like, okay, you know, I I know who I'm believing in this whole situation. Right. And it's impossible to hear all of this stuff and not be suspicious of fucking everybody. So I guess with Kubrick, like apart from the mental uh, anguish he put actors and actresses through, most famously Shelley Duvall. In The Shining. In The Shining. Apart from all that, it's like, fuck, I, I guess you really shouldn't put virtue on anyone unless you know them personally. <laughs> uh, it's, it's I tough. mean... What what is the sacrifice in the name of art? Yeah. Man. I think it's inevitable that someone like Kubrick would cause these conversations. Yes. I. <sighs> he is such a good director. Except for some parts of Paths of Glory where I fell asleep. All yeah. of his movies have been super engaging. I agree. And, I, you know, I, I didn't fall asleep, but there were definitely lulls in Paths of Glory. And this might be a conversation better suited to the, like, I'm picturing a recap of Kubrick kind of B-plot, maybe, where we really talk about it. But, well, I'm kind of viewing this as <laughs> a conversation that'd be really good for a, a review of the yeah, Kubrick movies. Yeah, let's talk about it again. Let's, let's move on. Okay. There, there's a lot of stuff to tackle. In <sighs> there's so much. Okay, so we go into this weird camp thing, and Wooly Bully starts playing, which is another upbeat song. And he get, uh, Joker gets to meet Cowboy again, and Crazy is there too, and we also meet Adam Baldwin, so we get this new cast of characters. We also get, like, Crazy Ray, um, some other people whose names I don't recall, unfortunately. This is but, uh, Lust Hog Squad, are these people? This is the Lust Hog Squad, and we get to hear new racial... Bullshit. They use a lot of slurs. I'm not going to say them, but we're all very familiar with the words they use to describe Asian people in the Vietnamese War. If you want to learn more about them, Google them on Urban Dictionary. I don't think they're valuable to say. Yeah, so and, they, and the way they speak to one another in the squad, yeah. which is a whole other conversation because it's like, is he putting the way they speak to the black men in the squad in there as like a mark of authenticity for what it might have been like or is it supposed to be entertaining like look at how funny these guys are with you like I, I don't know how to it's disgusting to be yeah. honest I, I think some things it's important to look at with a modern lens and this scene is problematic to me because they are so casually and horrifically racist towards uh the people that they are trying to quote unquote save in this country yeah, and the people they are trying the to Viet kill. Because it's the Viet Cong and also the Vietnamese. So the Viet Cong, if you're not familiar with the Vietnam War, is the antagonistic party 
mm-hmm. which people don't necessarily side with, but it's the ruling, it's the ruling faction. Yeah. So I think like this scene raises a lot of questions about what the intentions behind the, 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 the racial language, you know, sometimes it feels like it's meant like, look, they're pals, but while they're showing this to be pals in the squad, the person who needs to be accepting and cool with this are the people that are being targeted. Like, yeah. Like, uh, Adam Baldwin will call his squad mates the N-word, and then they'll be like, I, the old so-and-so. Like, basically, yeah. that's what they're expected to do. So, I don't know. It it did not sit right with me, and it's impossible for me to say if that was Kubrick's intention or if it was just putting the mark of authenticity on the thing. But... He did use the N-word in The Shining as well. So I think what I hope what he's trying to convey is disgust. Yeah, because, I mean, Jack Torrance is nothing but deplorable. Yeah. And he drops the N-word, so... Also, I think the only reason that I was feeling sympathetic toward Adam Baldwin um, is because he's Jane. Yeah, I think he's supposed to be a real disgusting guy. Yeah, I think you're supposed to... Okay, so you are supposed to fucking hate him, but low-key... Every time he said something, I could hear him <laughs> as Jane from Firefly, yeah. and it would be like, oh, yay. I, I didn't know he was in this movie. When I saw him, I'm like, oh, shit. I, like, I awesome. thought he just said Firefly. Yeah. I love Jane. Uh, so <laughs> it's really unfortunate. We meet uh, Lost Hog Squad, and I'm going to run us through some runtime real quick. But basically, they are tasked with going to the city of Huey, and they arrive at Huey with a tank. They're attacked, and the commanding officer, I forget who's, uh, what his name is. Crazy. Crazy. He dies, and now that he is dead, Cowboy is put in charge. And Cowboy's in charge of the squad, and while he is in charge, they are kind of misdirected they get lost and while they're lost they are brought to this complex of buildings and uh he sends forward uh one of the squad members i forget who to do some reconnaissance and this squad member gets shot by a sniper and when the squad member gets shot by a sniper there's a big disagreement in the squad on what to do and it's clear that cowboy's kind of out of his element And he decides, you know, we need to get Tank back up. Meanwhile, we're getting slow-mo shots of this guy being picked apart by the sniper. Brutal shots through the leg, arm, hands. And they're all slow-mo, hyper-bloody, really disturbing. And eventually it gets to the point where a second guy goes out to try and save him. He starts getting sniped. And I'll be honest, this was a little silly to me after a certain point. (laughs) I I don't want to say that... It was funny because no. it's filmed to be suffering and really create this pull between what's right and what's wrong in Cowboy as a squad leader. But, I mean, the guy gets shot like six times and then his squad mate goes out and also gets shot. I don't know if this aged well for me personally because <laughs> they're just out there just screaming, getting shot over and over and it starts to be so absurd. Maybe Maybe I'm just desensitized, but... I think it wasn't. That's as... part of the problem. How desensitized we are to violence. So yeah. I won't fault you. Yeah, it wasn't as serious as it was supposed to be. But animal mother, especially sorry, oh, yeah. especially considering the effects of the era. 
How Truly. bright blood was. Yeah. How it, bright blood was. Yeah, and I wonder if that's something that he just did to be like, oh, look, it's uh, super bloody, or if he's like, look, they're going to die because it's they were shot in an artery and it's this hyper-oxygenated bright blood or whatever. I could see both being feasible, personally. It's also like this circle jerk around violence that has been occurring since the 80s. Yeah, just uh, oh, like... It, it's weird because this movie being anti-war, everything that happens I view under the lens of critical of violence and stuff, but I think he's guilty of a bit of... Um, Dude, yeah. I mean, you're, you are a product of your environment as mm-hmm. much as you create your environment around you. Yeah. And Perfect. Kubrick, as influential as he was, I feel like even... I don't know how much shit bleeds when you get shot. Thankfully. Maybe it's realistic. Yeah, may- maybe. The ultimate result of this scene is that animal mother, Jane Cobb, Adam Baldwin, defies the squad leader cowboy's orders and runs up uh, to attempt to save him and sees that there's only one sniper. So that's kind of where I want to get to before, because after this, it's pretty much the conclusion yeah. of the movie. So I guess about this whole attack on Huey, I kind of skipped over the bird is the word scene. It's pretty much just tied to like Wooly Bully. Wooly Bully and they have a Viet Cong person dead and they're talking about how it's his birthday party. So it's more fucked up shit. And the scene after the attack on Huey and before they get ambushed by a sniper, they have a prostitute come around. Yeah, to the yeah, Tubuku, like you mentioned. Uh, and, which is French for big. And it's just tied immediately to, you know, we saw Cowboy murder some Viet Cong. Or not murder, I guess. I I don't know the proper phrase. He killed some Viet Cong in battle um, in, a, in a shootout. And the very next scene is them lounging and bartering on a prostitute. Like, it's it's this collision of violence and murder and sex and machismo and all of this shit yeah um so it's really it's putting the lamp in the face of american society mm-hmm. it's like Truly. shining an ugly light on it i think is what that's a, that yeah that's, that's a good what point. it is i think it's fair to say that while it takes place and is about the vietnam war it if something takes place in and during a war it doesn't have to be speaking about that war it's obviously making points about war but it could also be like you say, American culture just criticized under the lens of a war. Could be. I mean, the way they talk about Tet is that it's like New Year's and Christmas all rolled up in one. Mm-hmm. But it's it's so much more nuanced than that. They kind of reduce Vietnamese culture and they equate it to American culture. And the, the whole movie like doesn't respect Vietnam at all, which... Truly, yes. Of course it doesn't. But um, I wonder, this is another thing. Is it that Kubrick did not give a shit about Vietnamese people and just wanted to make a war movie about Americans? Or is it that the Vietnam War is this great American folly and Kubrick fucking hated it and he wanted to make a movie that didn't drag the Vietnam people into his criticism? He just wanted to roast American military for an hour and a half. If that if that's the case, why are the most prominent Vietnamese people in this movie two prostitutes and a guy who does some martial arts? That's a good point. That's a very good point. Um, 
Should we kind of cap off the plot here? Yeah, yeah, we can cut it off. So I feel like we talked about this movie during the plot the same way we always do. Yeah, which is fine because like I wanted I wanted to be more concise about plot summary, which I think we were to leave more room to to talk about, about it. bigger you know, ideas. I I wanted to try not doing so much plot summary, but really get into how we felt about the movie and the context of the movie and how they do stuff in the movie, which I think was. I personally feel like before we even finish here that it was successful. Yeah. If I, may. I so. mean, we, we shouldn't cut it off because the most important thing about this movie... Oh, yeah. I don't want to end. I, I want to finish the Oh, yeah. The kill it. Points. I kill it much like Joker killed a Vietnamese woman. Oh, yes. So they, they all move up on the <laughs> Too sniper. Too dark. Too dark. So they all move up on the sniper and Cowboy gets shot through a hole. And all we see of the sniper up to this point is the barrel of a gun as they... Uh, kill members of Lust Hog Squad. It gets to the point that Animal Mother takes control of the squad because Cowboy is dead and directs them on a revenge mission. I believe he specifically says it's time to get revenge and he gets some buy-in from Joker. And uh, Joker, he says, are you ready? And Joker up to this point has not been combative. He's been very joking around, per his name. And he says, yeah, let's get revenge now. So they go up. He tries to, he finds a sniper, tries to kill her. It's a very young Vietnamese girl. And his rifle fails him. Yes. Without my rifle, Fuck. I am useless. Without me, my rifle is useless. Wow, Jenny, his rifle yes. is useless in this scene because it jams on him. Took that for granted. Yeah. What a great insight uh, with the Rifleman Creed or whatever it is. Uh, that's a really good point. It, it ends up being that uh, Rafter Man kills her mm-hmm. and she is gasping begging for death and they all are just staring at her until Joker can summon up the uh, guts or courage or sense of obligation or shame or what I don't know what is I don't know what he's building up but he's forcing himself to kill her and in such a complicated scene because she is asking to be shot, but she's so young, but she just killed three of them, and all of these things are at play, and you can see them all at play in his mind as he's raising his pistol to shoot this girl. Yeah, she asks to shoot me. Yeah, she just, Un- rep- and she's oh praying. Oh my god, is that similar to how they kept repeating, like, this is my rifle, this is my gun? Yeah, I, that, think, I feel I feel like that calls back. I feel like the repetitiveness of it. Yeah, these repetitive mantras, uh, like oh the long God. takes of singing, chants, road memory, and now she's just repeating, shoot me, shoot me, shoot me. And he does. And then the final scene, very iconic. They're, wa- they're jogging or walking through a burning town singing the Mickey Mouse song. And uh, the final... We neglected to mention that Joker narrates over many of these scenes, Uh, but the final narration is probably the most important in that he says he was no longer afraid, and no matter what happens, he is is no, no longer afraid. So the movie ends on him killing a young Vietnamese girl who just killed three of their squad members, and he is no longer afraid of... I took it to mean no longer afraid of war and killing... So I think this is a very cynical, dark ending. 
I think it's like the failure of humanity, basically, in Joker. He is now a he's now a killer. He he was not made a killer by boot camp, um, even though that was the ongoing mantra. Holy he goes off the war and now he is a killer and Yes. We're not happy about it. That's, That's how why, I saw it. That is why you are the English major. Ooh, yeah, happy to fill in. But that's really good. I mean, it's a really, it's a really meaty last fifteen minutes here. Yeah, what, I mean, uh, killing a person is probably. <sighs> we don't stare into the eyes of anybody else who gets killed. Yeah, and to mention real quick, the Wikipedia summary mentions specifically how when Joker is choosing whether or not to kill his girl. Uh, it describes him staring into the distance, the thousand-yard stare that all these other Marines are coveting and want, and now we see him getting it, and it is not a glorious moment. It's dark and confusing. I think we can all agree this movie is anti-war, but I think it's harder to agree on what it says about humanity. Yeah, or, or the intentions it's made with. Yes. Do you want to talk about uh, what you... Like and dislike? Um, I think it's crazy how this feels like two movies. Mm-hmm. Because the first part is such a different thing than the last part. Yeah. I, um, I guess I like that in the end. Because it's this disconnected, connected story. It's like, uh, sewing a button back on a shirt. Hmm. That's a nice way of putting it, like, just uh, affixed to this larger sense of things. I don't know how to describe it, but this boot camp is the the addition to, or what comes before. I don't know how to say it. I wish I knew how I felt about this movie without the boot camp scenes. Because I feel like that's supposed to affect how you feel about the entire movie. Yeah. Of course. So you want to, you want to... Or are trying to resist splitting it up into two, or are you trying to force yourself resist, to split it? I want to resist splitting it up into two because intrinsically I do. Yeah. Because the tonal shift of the two movies is so wildly different, and I don't take the first part and the second part as a cohesive thing. Like they feel different, and maybe that's the fucking point. Because even the color scheme is completely changed. Like the first one is so blue. Second one's green and brown, and I wonder if it's, like, this change in the way we are supposed to think and the way Joker thinks, because even in the beginning, he's like, I'm a killer! And in the second part, he starts wearing this hippie pin, and he starts growing out his hair, and, I mean, at the very end of the drill sergeant scene, he's like, you're gonna write? I was was writing for my high school newspaper, sir! Mm -hmm. And he wanted to be the first kill confirmed on his block. I mean, I took that as a joke. I did not. Oh, I I read that as a. I just I just view Joker as such a cynical guy. I I think he's supposed to be the stand-in for the public, and he wanted to be the first confirmed kill on his block, being like, "Oh yeah, I'm a killer." Like he's giving John Wayne impressions in his barracks, talking about. Being in the battle and everyone else calls him out like you haven't seen shit. You haven't, you don't have the thousand yards there. When really he has seen some serious shit. His drill sergeant and his squad mate 
committed suicide in front of him. But uh, I just view him as such a jaded, like, kind of asshole kind of guy that... Is it, is it the suicide murder that jaded him, though? Yeah, maybe, but he says he wanted to be the first confirmed kill on his block after that, didn't he? Well, I, uh, why would he lie? Because we already know he'll say the truth. Like, he doesn't believe in the Virgin Mary, which, I mean, maybe 87 is the time period where it starts to be okay to say I'm an atheist, but... Yeah, but those things... The previous, like, it's set in the 60s, 70s, and, like, back then, like, being a Christian was still... I mean, we get we as a society get more atheistic every year. My counter argument would be that the things that he says as a person in the film versus the things that he says in narration okay. could be viewed as I the the way I heard them That's was like the, diary entries basically. Yeah. Because like, he tells Gomer we're not mad at you and he he says stuff he doesn't necessarily mean. Yeah, so and I don't know. He's editorializing shit, like oh, all the time. Like that, that was very explicitly called out in the newspaper scene where the editor is like, "Yeah, say somebody dead." And he's like, "I'll say whatever you want me to say." So, <sighs> anyway. It's gonna be so deep. I feel like Joker. Like it's so obvious as the name. Like don't don't take it at face value. So maybe. I wanted to be the first kill confirmed on my block isn't necessarily true. Um, I feel like what you're supposed to take out of this movie is that it's this transformation of this young man from being pro-war to anti-war. And him calling out that he wanted to be the first kill confirmed on his block is a highlight of how his character is shifted. But then again, he is the one who kills the, the sniper. Yeah. Which, as far as we're aware, is his first confirmed kill. Yeah, exactly. I think, and I joked during the watching of this, like, that's a PTSD guarantee. Yeah. And that's true. I think that's what it's supposed to be. Um, Harkening back to Barry, how he... Spoilers for Barry, potentially. Oh, shit. Uh, never mind, never mind. Um, um... But basically, Barry... I don't want to spoil Barry. Barry is such a good show. Barry contends with PTSD a lot. So and, well. Um, yeah, so I, I get the point you're making. I think it's Do you want to start re-watching Barry tonight? Please? <laughs> sure. Yes! Um, Do you want babka? Maybe two babka. But anyway, I, I think those are really good points about the movie. I think my favorite part is going to be... That it seems like it's saying a lot. Uh, it's. I, think I, that, I don't know what it's saying. Yeah. Or how to feel about what it's saying. Yeah. And that's my least favorite part. Because <laughs> it could be saying some shit that I really disagree with. And I I don't know how to be certain of if Kubrick is saying something that I think is insightful. Or if he's saying something that I would think is ignorant. I, It's impossible to tell because he's not around to clarify. And I don't think he would care to clarify so I think the more you rewatch this... I think what's this, important to think about is the way he treats other war movies. He's yeah. never been pro-war. No. He hasn't been anti-racism either. But yeah, that's so like two aspects of a person. I guess I should be clear that I think he's saying some things that I think are very insightful about 
men, specifically male men, and war. But like, what I don't know, oh, I don't know the points. No, no, no. I I should say that the things he's saying about men, like male men, and war, are insightful, and I agree with. But what I don't know if they're insightful, and I agree with, are things like race and uh, the role of women in his movies. I don't know, because the things he says about race and women in most movies are very narrow-minded and very misogynistic or potentially very racist. Potentially. Well, that's the thing. Potentially being like... Oh, if, if, he's it's, like, if it's a sarcastic... If it's satire. Yeah, but given the time and given the, like scenarios it's used i have to imagine that it's not insightful i have to imagine it's ignorant but i can't be certain so i would have to say that that's what i don't like about the movie because i don't want to say oh he's a real insightful guy and then in 10 weeks or whatever find some published article where he's like oh yeah i just everyone thought i was pro black people but i hate him you know like i don't (laughs) i don't know what the guy was like so i can't the things that are not clear, I can't. I don't know how to reckon with those, you know. As that, that's with really him insightful. Movies. I like that. Yeah, so that's I a good point. I, I guess movie. I have the perspective that it's supposed to be, like you're supposed to be like, hey, what the fuck about it? But maybe people weren't back then. Yeah, I I don't know. I have racist 80- ass parents, so I don't fucking know. I mean, eighty seven. We like to think Sorry, it was modern, but. It's not... It's fucking not. They had the Cold War. They didn't have goddamn cell phones. Social media and cancel culture wasn't a thing. So maybe they just got to say shit. And people were still marginalized. They are right fucking now. But it was worse then. Exactly. Like, how racist shit is now, it would be kind of irresponsible to give the benefit of the doubt to a movie director who was active from the 50s to the... 90s you know like, like that guy was probably are, shitty yeah people are talking about how it's fucked up that friends had an all-white cast and people are like oh it's a time capsule of racism but yeah. it's like it's racism so like it's great great it exists as it is but does it represent this greater ideology of the creator mm-hmm. yeah uh, it's tough and i think there's gonna be a lot to talk about I think what's important... After two more. But. Yeah, there's going to be... I mean, I don't know if Clockwork Orange has any black characters. Yeah, I don't... I, I, I don't think Space familiar. Odyssey does either. I think it's just the two men. Yeah. Anyhow, should we should we slap a rating on this thing? Or is there anything in your uh, heart that you want to... Anything? What's in my heart? <sighs> what is in my heart of hearts? Uh, there were no dogs in this movie. That's fucked up. That's true. No, no dogs, no animals of any kind, except for um, no, no animals that I recall. So, uh, rating on three. One, two, three, eight Seven. and a half. Oh, awkward. Uh... We can. I I would meet at uh, an eight or a seven and a half. I... Although we could also do seven point seven five and try and fill in the stars on the poster. The, the reason I give it an eight and a half is that I truly feel the more you watch it and the more you read into it, just based on the first viewing, how much context and subcontext there could be. Yeah. I think, I think there's a lot to be said about the themes that 
we can be fairly confident about. The reason I'm detracting is that there are very problematic stuff that we can't be confident about, and I don't want to put my mark of approval on something that's... Would you have put a 9 on this movie if you had known explicitly that Kubrick was anti-racism? I might have given it a 9 or a 9.5 even, if I, if I could be confident that the things he says are in good faith, but that it just sticks with me to such a degree. And that's the other thing. Like, like Parasite. Okay. So I think Parasite is our only 10. So far, yes. That doesn't even touch on racism. That's just classism. Yeah. So, but that's the thing. It doesn't. It doesn't have these elements of the movie that you're like. Wait, what the fuck? Yeah, like okay. is he making this in bad faith? You know. Yeah. Like the director of Parasite could be a racist. I don't fucking know. What um? What's that argument you hear all the time about American History X? Oh, the the one where it uh, glorifies the culture of white supremacy and Nazis to show, like, the attractive aspects and why your main characters would be drawn to that. All all the characters in uh, Full Metal Alchemist. <laughs> <laughs> Full Metal Jacket, like, laughed at the racism. Yeah, so... So is that calling out the attractiveness? It, like, the way the characters react. But they, they kill for one another. <sighs> They do, but also, um, it's fucked up. Yeah, I, th- I think it is fucked that the way you would express your bond for one another is to be willing to take human life. Um, but I think, I, I don't know if that's... This movie's definitely anti-Asian. It, it seems I don't think there's that... even kind of an argument. Yeah, it, it seems that way, like... All of the Asian people in this movie are classed as destitute, thieves, or villains. Yeah. You know, There's no like, retribution at all. There's not even like a hint. Of, that's a lie. I'm sorry. The sniper at the end. But I don't know if that's enough to redeem the other portrayals. I mean, this is the third woman we've seen. It's the only non-prostitute. And she dies. And she dies. But... After killing three American good boys. I'd argue that she's given more humanity than the entire Lust Hog Squad. You meet the Lust Hog Squad. No, Joker, I feel like it's more... Well, he's not in the Lust Hog Squad. He's a... Oh, okay, okay, okay. But everyone in the Lust Hog Squad are... They're super stoked to get out and kill. Yeah. And we don't know if the sniper was excited to kill or uh, lustful of killing. I feel like the way they frame the sniper is like nobody else is there. She's a lone wolf. She's trying to defend her country. Yeah. And she's young. Like the American audience sees this and thinks child. And I say American audience meaning me. I don't know how they reacted, but... I'm an American, too. I'll say young. Yeah, so I see this, and I'm like, that's that's like a 15-year-old girl or something. That's yeah. That's a young child. And then um, what do we see from her? She We don't see her commit murder. We see a gun commit murder. And then when she dies, she prays, which I think is meant to convey a universal, like, desire for peaceful afterlife you know like very humanizing and uh she begs to be shot and put out of her misery and uh like the fact that joker hesitates like he's not super stoked to go get revenge he's hesitant and she 
like you say, is defending. So I don't know. Like, I think that it is certainly not uh, a good portrayal of Asian people, but at the very end, at least, it's clear that Kubrick views them as humans, you know? He's not... uh, He's not making the argument that Asian people are subhuman. I think that all the characters in the movie that view them as subhuman makes it easy to put that on the director. But again, that's the conversation we keep coming back to. Yeah. What is his intention? I don't know. Yeah, that's a good point. I feel like her death is supposed to be so impactful that it immediately humanizes all the other characters. But the way that they treated them... Like, I don't I don't know what fucking $10 was worth in the Vietnam War, but, like, that's... I feel his portrayal of women versus his portrayal of other races, like, women get the shorter end of the stick. Yeah. So. That's fair. I don't know. Although in The, the Shining, the portrayal of a woman was the correct caretaker protector against the murderer okay yeah but also at the same time in dr strangelove it was the sex pot that um, sex pot (laughs) is paraded around and they are the they are the prize maybe he maybe he grew as a person as he grew as a director maybe these are conversations we should save for our wrap-up. So, Especially because this one is very long. Oh, so sorry. All right. So I will come up to an eight. Uh, I'll go full, down to a seven and a half. We'll, okay, seven and a half. Full metal jacket is seven a, a seven and a half. Not because of its filmic qualities. It's so well But because made. of its cultural connotations. The I, way it I makes can't... me feel hurts. And and not in a good challenge your sense of self in the way of culture, but like in a questioning like what is this guy really saying? Yeah. Kind of way. So I think it's good to hurt, quote unquote, from a movie. Um but The way know, this makes us hurt. Yeah, this is this is a potentially ignorant guy making some really ignorant statements, which is why it's going down, but as a movie it's incredibly well made and there's a yeah. lot to think about. It it deserves its spot on the top one hundred, of course. Yeah. Especially since it makes conversations like this happen. Yeah. Well this was All a really right. fun what episode. Thanks for listening and uh you know, hope you hope you got through here. I I I liked the quicker plot summary points and um I think it left a lot of breathing room to have deep review. I don't yeah. know. Uh, that's my thought. Anyway. All right. Bye. Also, Pugsley loves you. Yes, he does. Bye-bye. Do it. End the fucking thing. <laughs> <laughs>